You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Jesus Christ, you are our living hope. The fact that you conquered the grave is astounding. But even more than that, Lord, the fact that you love us, that you gave yourself for us so that we could have forgiveness of sins, is even more astounding. That we were wicked, rebellious, sinful creatures who decided that you were better fit for a cross than you were for a crown. And yet, you laid your life down so we could come to know you. That's why we worship this morning, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and that you were honored and magnified through our praising you through song. And I pray, Lord, that as we open up your word, we'd be reminded of the greatness of your revealed word to us, that you revealed to us yourself through the scriptures. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty, go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 35 this morning. But one of the things I was thinking about when we're thinking about the resurrection, when we're thinking about this Sunday, is um, how many religions there are throughout the world. I did a quick Google search this morning, and there are roughly 4,000 different religions in the world. Whether it's Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, Mormonism, Christianity, just to name a few. Those are just an overview of a few of them. They all purport to have some type of moral teachings. They all have some sort of leadership or organization that dictates the way that you worship. They all have believe that if you follow their rules, if you follow their design, then the world and your life would be better. They all make these types of claims. So the question is, is why would we believe Christianity to be true? Why should we uphold the teachings of Jesus as superior to those of Muhammad, of Joseph Smith, of Buddha, of Confucius, of any of those? Why should we hold Jesus's teachings more? Does Christianity stand out above the rest of these teachings? And if so, how? This is a question that we all must wrestle with. We must look at the evidence and decide if we believe Jesus to be who he said he is, or if we should follow another one of these religious teachings. You're here this morning in a Bible-believing, Jesus-worshipping church, and I'm going to try to convince you that Christianity is true. I'm going to try to convince you that Christianity is right. Most of you in here probably already agree with that proposition, but some of you may doubt that Christianity is true. Maybe you're here because your family or friends asked you to attend. Maybe you were here and dragged here because somebody wanted you to be here and you feel guilty for not going. Maybe you are curious about this whole Jesus thing. Maybe you are just asking questions. Maybe you're seeking the truth. Wherever you are this morning, I want to present to you with the fundamental claim of Christianity. If this claim was proven to be false, then all of Christianity would fail. If you could, if you could convince me that this singular event was a hoax or falsified, then I would have no other choice than to walk away from Jesus and seek some other truth. This claim that is essential to Christianity is that Jesus was resurrected. That after his death and after his burial, Jesus rose again on the third day, not as a spirit, not as a hallucination, but in the body, in the flesh. This is the fundamental and foundational claim of Christianity. Jesus rose from the grave. Like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, your faith is worthless. So if we can prove that Jesus has not raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless. 
I want to start by looking at what most historians would agree about before I get to the resurrection. We need to, we need to have a framework that we can work within. First, you would be really hard-pressed to find any historian that would deny the claim that Jesus actually lived. Even secular, atheistic professors in all major universities believe that Jesus was an actual man, that he actually lived. Second, they would mostly all agree that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Thirdly, they would also agree that the followers of Jesus believed that they saw, saw and interacted with Jesus after his death. They wouldn't agree that the disciples actually saw Jesus, but they would agree that the disciples believed that they interacted with Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, in order to discount Christianity, we have to prove that the resurrection didn't happen. Now, that seems easy enough. If we could simply prove that the tomb was empty or not empty, then we could prove that Christianity is incorrect. Yet, as it is, the tomb is empty. Even if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave, everyone needs to account for what the, what the empty tomb, tomb means. There was an empty tomb. So what do we do with the empty tomb? Well, here are some explanations that have arised over history. I'm not going to go through every theory, but here's the gist of them. The first one is, and the earliest one, is the stolen body theory. And the earliest one is given in the New Testament scriptures that the Jewish leaders accused the followers of Jesus of going into the tomb and removing Jesus's body and then claiming that he had been resurrected. The problem with this is, is that there were guards at the tomb. And so you would have to assume that the disciples were able to overpower the, the, the guards and that the disciples were going to go in the tomb and take roll away this stone and go into the tomb and take Jesus's body. Now, the problem with that is, is that the disciples were terrified at Jesus's crucifixion. They were terrified. They were hiding when Jesus was crucified. Okay. So there's one theory that's somewhat debunked. The next one is the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but only appeared to die. He simply was revived during the rest in his tomb. During those three days, he was revived. So when the disciples saw him, they had mistaken that he actually rose from the grave. But what's the problem with that one? Well, the problem with that one is the Romans were really good at killing people. They were really good at killing people. They knew when people were dead. You see, before Jesus' crucifixion, he was actually beaten almost to death, and then he was crucified. Then he was, a spear was stabbed into his side, piercing his heart. So we would have to believe that he was placed in a tomb without any medical intervention and somehow mysteriously and magically got better. Doesn't sound likely. Okay, so the next one, the hallucination theory, that the disciples were so overwhelmed with grief that they imagined seeing Jesus alive. The problem is, is that if it's simply a hallucination, then all the Jewish leaders would have had to do would take the, the disciples back to the tomb and say, hey, you, you saw, you're wrong. Jesus is here. His body is decaying, and that would have stomped out Christianity. But alas, again, the tomb was empty. Another one is there's the wrong tomb theory, that everyone went to the wrong tomb. They didn't actually go to Jesus' tomb. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, if there was a wrong tomb, that means there was a right tomb, and all you had to do to disprove that was take them to the right tomb, and then everybody would be silenced. One more theory is that the twin or replacement theory, which means that it wasn't actually Jesus who died. It was a twin of his or somebody else who was crucified in his place. 
The problem with this is goes back. It would go back to the incompetence of the Roman soldiers. If it was just somebody in Jesus's place, they really wanted to crucify Jesus. And it'd also be the incompetence of the Jewish leaders not to know that that was Jesus on the cross. And if it was a twin, then Jesus would have had to convince his twin to die in his place. But that doesn't seem likely either. My favorite theory is, well, not my favorite one, but one of my favorite false theories is that Jesus was actually an alien and that he came down and he had mysterious and magical powers. Just everything. Let's just throw everything against the wall and see if anything sticks, right? The final theory is that the resurrection actually happened. That Jesus predicted his resurrection and proved that he was a son of God and that he was raised from the dead. Now, there's a problem with this one, too. And the problem with this one is, if that's true, then we all need to bow the knee to Jesus. And we need to worship him for the God that he is. And sometimes we don't want to do that, so we come up with other examples or reasons that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And maybe you're looking at me this morning and you're still not, conv- not convinced that this whole resurrection thing is real. That the resurrection ap- actually happened. That Jesus is alive. Maybe you still doubt. Maybe you're still asking the question, is this all true? That's okay. I want you to know that there's room for your doubt. It's hard to wrap our mind around the resurrection. It's not something that happens every day. It's not something that we're used to. It's a claim that Jesus makes, that his disciples makes, that we have to wrestle with and think about. To be honest with you, it was even hard for the disciples of Jesus to believe in the resurrection. Initially, they didn't know what to do with the empty tomb either. So if you doubt, if you're like, I don't know about this whole thing, you're in good company. The disciples doubted. Let's look at what, th- what happened. Luke chapter 24, verse, verse 1 through 3 says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. These are the first visitors to Jesus' tomb. In verses 5 and 10, we find that these were actually um, some women who went to Jesus' tomb first. And we'll talk about them in just a minute. And they went to the tomb very early in the morning. They hadn't been able to anoint Jesus' body with the spices that they had prepared. So they were going early in the morning. In Jewish, Jewish culture, a dead body would be covered in spices to honor them and to keep them from the stink of decay. Notice this, they were bringing the spices to place on the dead body of Jesus. They had every expectation for Jesus' dead body to be there. They had every expectation that the decaying process had started. They couldn't visit the tomb the day before because it was a Sabbath, but today they could. So they got up really early in the morning to go see Jesus. These women were on their way to the tomb of Jesus, and they had no room in their thought, in their mind about a resurrection. They, were going to, they weren't going to go check on an empty tomb. They 100% believed that Jesus' body was going to be there. That can't be stressed enough. None of the disciples expected or planned Jesus to rise from the dead, to be resurrected. They were distraught after watching Jesus be beaten, after watching him be nailed to the cross. They were overcome with emotions, but they didn't know or believe that Jesus would rise again. And they arrived to see that the stone had been rolled away. The stone that covered the tomb was rolled away to the side, and Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. So they were at an empty tomb. No body found. They were perplexed, probably confused, 
And then they have an interaction with some angels. In verse 4, it says this, While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead, they asked, asked the men. He's not here, but he is, has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. He is risen. He has risen. The women were perplexed, and two men, later referred to as angels, were standing by them. Jesus wasn't there. He has risen. No more beautiful words have ever been spoken. Jesus is alive. He has risen. He defeated death. He conquered the grave. But what do these angels remind the women of? The words that Jesus spoke to them. That he had predicted his resurrection. In Luke's gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus makes some six different predictions about his death and resurrection. Yet his closest followers didn't even believe like in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he says this, It is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised on the third day. Or even in Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 33, it says this, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, and spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise on the third day. This is a theme throughout the resurrection of Luke's account. Jesus' words make an impact on the people he speaks to and those he taught, but sometimes they forget. The women remembered what Jesus said here because the angel spoke it to him. And after hearing the words from the angels and remembering the words of Jesus, it caused the women to believe, and they rushed back to the disciples to the 11 and to the other ones who were hiding. Verse 9, returning from the tomb, they all reported these things to the 11 and to the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women were with them, were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths so he went away amazed at what had happened. The disciples were told by the women what they interacted with the angels. The disciples are another group of people who didn't believe that the resurrection happened. The women tell them what they saw and what they heard, yet the disciples of Jesus didn't believe. Especially those who were closest to him didn't believe. They thought the women were crazy, that they were speaking nonsense. This is also a cultural thing. Women were not believed when it came to being witnesses of any event. They couldn't be trusted. They were supposed to be seen and not heard. They certainly shouldn't be believed about an event so amazing as this. Which is why it's so scandalous that God would choose the women to be the first ones to go to the empty tomb. Knowing that that would be a barrier for many to believe in the resurrection. Just look at the disciples. They had a hard time believing the women. But what God wants us to understand is that it doesn't matter who brings a message. It's what the message is about. The tomb was empty, no matter if women brought it or people brought it. The tomb was empty. The truth is still the truth, no matter who brings the truth. Not only that, but the message about the empty tomb isn't just for pastors or those in leadership. 
that we're not the only ones tasked with spreading the good news. It's a message for all G Jesus followers. Regardless of if you are seen as one who is outcast or an outsider, if you believe in the resurrection, you should spread that message. Because there may be those who do believe you. There may be those who around you who are at least curious. Look at Peter. He heard the message and he left to go see for himself. And when he got there, he saw that the tomb was empty. He saw the linen cloths, meaning that the tomb wasn't ransacked. It wasn't an act of grave, rob grave robbers. It was something miraculous that happened. The Gospel of John tells us that the clothes were neatly folded. So this wasn't a messy scene. There was order. There was beauty in the tomb. Peter is astounded by what he saw. But he still doesn't fully believe, and that's for a later time. But he doesn't know what to think. He walks away amazed. Amazed at what happened. There's a cliffhanger here that we're not even going to talk about, really, when it comes to this text. But Peter's left in limbo at this point. He can't explain it. He doesn't even try to. He just walks away thinking about it. So here is one of Jesus' disciples, his closest disciple, one of his inner circle. And he still doesn't understand the fullness of what Jesus taught. He doesn't understand the fullness of what he sees. Luke paints us a picture that those closest to Jesus are confused and compounded by the empty tomb. Not sure what to think. So should it surprise us that sometimes we're confused and compounded by the empty tomb? Not really. But Luke makes a shift here. And he shifts to a couple of lesser known disciples who are leaving Jerusalem and going back to their home in a town called Emmaus. Verse 13, it says this. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. We're on the road to Emmaus. This event happens the same day as the women and Peter find the empty tomb. It's a completely different part of town. Two disciples of Jesus. This wouldn't be the 11 apostles, but just two regular disciples who had followed Jesus around. And they were thinking about what had happened over the last several days. They're probably thinking about Jesus's entry into Jerusalem just a week prior with people cheering him on and being excited about the arrival of Jesus singing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're probably also reflecting on Jesus's overturning of the tables in the temple courtyard, the flogging and the trials that Jesus was on, the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and now the empty tomb. Not only were they discussing, but they were arguing about what happened. What does this mean? What does this mean for my, for his disciples? How could this miracle worker, this self-proclaimed Messiah die? There was no consensus. So there was arguing like any good friendship, a little bit of arguing. Then someone joins them in their travel. Jesus is there walking alongside them. Now it's interesting to note that they didn't recognize Jesus, but even more than that, they were kept from recognizing Jesus. In some mysterious way, Jesus or the father had blocked their eyes from seeing the truth of Jesus. Jesus hid the full revelation of himself from them. Now for us, the readers, we're sitting here saying, oh, come on, this is obviously Jesus. Luke tells us that it's Jesus, but they were blinded to the truth. We have knowledge that, he, that they didn't have at that time. 
Now, then the question par- parks, uh, comes forth and says, why would God cause them not to see Jesus for who he is? Here are a few possible reasons. In this, this instance, they need to learn to trust God's promises. Not allowing them to see Jesus will lead to a deeper and fuller faith when they see him in the future. You see, they had been told multiple times about Jesus' death and resurrection, and yet they haven't believed. But their faith is going to be bolstered by the fact that they are talking with Jesus right now, yet they don't know it. The promises of God are good and true, and here they're going to see that even if they don't know what God is doing, they are better if they trust him. Not only that, but God wasn't ready for them to recognize him. You see, God gets to determine when understanding comes. They get to see Jesus for who he is, not on their terms, but on his. On top of that, they also get to work out their thoughts and their faith during this discussion with Jesus. If they immediately recognized Jesus, he wouldn't have, they wouldn't have had the same opportunity to learn from him. They wouldn't have been able to be honest with their struggles, with their heartache when it comes to the death of Jesus. So the hiding of his identity wasn't for himself, it was for them. This interaction of Jesus hiding himself from them, in that they get to grow their faith. But also recognize this, just because they didn't know who Jesus was, doesn't mean that he didn't know who they were. Just because they couldn't see him for who he is, doesn't mean that he had abandoned them. Jesus was with them when they questioned and doubted. Jesus was with them when they struggled with what had happened. Jesus was with them, even though they couldn't recognize him. So know that regardless of what you are going through, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to him, then he is there with you, even when you don't recognize him. Trust that he knows where you are. He knows where he is leading you. In the darkest of nights, in the deepest of tragedies, in the throes of hopelessness, Jesus doesn't leave us. He comes to us and he teaches us to trust him. And so on this road to Emmaus, something happens and Jesus starts to ask some questions about what they were arguing about. Verse 17 says this, then he asked them, what is this dispute that you are having with each other as you were walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. Then one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, said, but they didn't see him. So these men on this road to Emmaus recap the events for Jesus. We're not going to spend a ton of time in these verses, but here we're introduced to one of the disciples' names. His name is Cleopas. Luke most likely gives us his name because when his gospel was written, Cleopas was most likely alive, or at least his, his story was well known, and the sources of this event could be verified if needed. 
We also learn here that some of the disciples thought of what some of the disciples thought about Jesus. In verse 19, we hear about him being a powerful prophet in both action and speech, and that it was a chief priest and that caused him to be killed. In verse 21, we find out that some of the disciples expected of Jesus that he would be the Messiah that was going to overthrow Rome and reestablish Israel as God's kingdom. They expected him to be a kingly military leader of sorts that would save them from being under the thumb of Rome. But his death put a damper on their expectations. We also find that they didn't believe the women, not about the empty tomb, but specifically not about the angels. They said they had visions of angels, placing doubt on what they actually saw. These women are hysterical. They just had visions of angels. And some went to the tomb, and indeed it was empty, but they still don't know what to do with the empty tomb information. So essentially, they are catching Jesus up to speed about all that happened, which is kind of ironic because he is the whole reason that all this happened. He was there from the beginning. He knows about the empty tomb. He knows about the crucifixion. He knows about it all. And they're informing Jesus. So what's Jesus going to do after he hears this information? How is Jesus going to respond to what the disciples just revealed to him? That's a good question. Is he going to reveal himself? He says, here I am, guys. Is he going to take away that spiritual blindness that they have? No, not yet. He's not. In fact, he's going to do something even more amazing. In verses 25 and 20 through 27, it says this. He said to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus tells them the story of redemption. This is one of my favorite scenes in all of Luke's gospel. The disciples have just explained their despair and their struggles, and Jesus gently rebukes them. But they still don't know that it's Jesus. He's still hidden from them. So how does he correct them? How does he correct their understanding? How does he point them to the truth through scripture with the word of God? If I had a time machine and there was one place I could go back to, this would be the moment, not the crucifixion, not the empty tomb, but this time when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, this is where I want want to be. I would love to hear Jesus from Jesus's mouth, the explanation of the scriptures from Moses to the prophets that speak about him. That's what Jesus does here. He goes through all the scriptures and tells them about the things that point to his coming, to his death, to his resurrection. All the while, they didn't know who he was. I'm sure he started in Genesis chapter 3 with the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. He then probably moved to, to Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah and the substitution of the ram for Isaac's body. Then the revealing of Moses to Moses, the everlasting providence of God at the burning bush. The Passover lamb, where life is spared for those who believe and trust in God's word. The building of the tabernacle, revealing that God wants to dwell with his people. The sacrificial system in Leviticus, pointing to the need for a permanent sacrifice. The valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, pointing towards the resurrection and God mending the brokenness of humanity. Isaiah 53, and the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I am confident that this would have been an amazing event to witness. I could probably spend a whole sermon on these three verses, but suffice it to say that Jesus 
explains from the beginning of time, the son of God to be sacrificed, to bring redemption. And Jesus's revelation of history of redemption points to the fact that the disciples didn't understand the scriptures, that they didn't actually trust the scriptures. You see in verse 25, he says this, they should believe all that the prophets have spoken. There shouldn't be any argument. There shouldn't be any discouragement, any confusion or dismay. The scriptures revealed all that must take place when the Messiah comes. Yet here they're divorced from the truth of God revealed in his word. You see, when you can't trust God's word as he has given it, then you will not be able to trust God himself. We have to uphold the truth of scriptures. If we believe that Jesus is who he said he is, we should come with the same confidence to the scriptures that he did. That it is the very word of God. And that through the very word of God, the only way that people will find salvation is through Jesus Christ. The word of God is our foundation. It is what our faith is built on because it's the word of God that testifies to us about the truth of who Jesus is. And that's where Luke leads us in the next section of the story. Verse 28, they came near the village where they were going and he gave the impression that he was going to go further. But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those gathered with them who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they begin to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. There's a resurrection revelation here. The disciples and Jesus arrive at their destination. They're in Emmaus and Jesus is going to keep on going. But the disciples say, no, come on, stay with us. Maybe they wanted this to hear some more of this stranger's teaching. Maybe they were simply um, hospitable because that evening was coming and the roads would have been dangerous to travel alone. Whatever the reason, Jesus agrees to stay with them. Then we get this amazing picture of Jesus as, as the guest in the house, breaking bread and giving it to them. And this is an allusion to the Lord's Supper and to the broken body of Jesus. But more than that, it demonstrates the intimacy that Jesus has with his followers. You see, sharing a meal with someone is an intimate act. You're sharing your food and your home and your life with them. Jesus wants to share this with these disciples, and he wants to share it with you as well. He wants you to know him intimately, not just know about him, but know him as the savior of the world, the redeemer, the Lord. One commentator says this about a fellowship meal. He says this table fellowship in the Jewish world meant that all participants shared not only their food, but their lives as well. They became one by sharing a meal. Since God was present, this meant union with him. At this meal, they understood the union that they had with Jesus. It's no accident that at the breaking of bread and the intimacy with Jesus, that was when the disciples' eyes were opened. That was when the reality of who was with them was recognized. 
It is intimacy and fellowship with Jesus that brings recognition of who he is. Jesus is known by the love and compassion he has for those who love and serve him. And fellowship becomes the mark of the early church. Eating, worshiping through song, studying the scriptures together is how the early church mirrored Jesus' life here on earth. Notice that once Jesus is revealed to them through the intimate act of breaking bread, what happens? They recognize who he is and then he just gone. He disappears. Just when they recognize it, he's gone. And then all of a sudden they reflect on their experience with Jesus. Another beautiful, beautiful verse here in Luke 24 in verse 32, it says, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. The scriptures were so important to the early believers. The word of God should stir up a burning within us too. As we listen and as we study the word of God is God's revelation of self to us. So if we want to know God, if we want intimacy with God, if we want to grow in our relationship with God, if we want to re- God to reveal himself to us, then we have to hear his word. We have to listen to his voice. You see, Jesus knew something as he was explaining the scriptures to these men. He knew that his time with the disciples was going to be short. He knew that he was eventually going to have to leave and go sit at the right hand of God the Father. So what happens on the road to Emmaus is even more astounding. These disciples get a lesson on how to interpret the scriptures from Jesus himself, knowing that all who believe in Jesus will see his resurrected body. Most of us will never see Jesus's resurrected body, this side of heaven. In fact, most of those of us who come to believe will have to believe through the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel. You may never see Jesus this side of heaven, but both the disciples saw the testimony and knew that the scriptures were enough. The scriptures burned within them. The scriptures are enough to trust and to believe in Jesus, that he is who he said he is. We have to rely and trust on the scriptures. We can trust the scriptures. Why? Because Jesus trusted the scriptures. We can trust the scriptures because the disciples trusted the scriptures. Those who saw Jesus trusted them. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. For those of us who believe, we should have a burning in our hearts for the scriptures, because in them, we see Jesus. In them, we find life. In them, we see joy. We find comfort. The 66 books are the way that God chose to reveal himself to us. So if we want to know him, we have to know what the book says about him. If we want to believe, if we believe the testimony of the scriptures, our lives will be changed. And if our lives are changed at the revelation of Jesus, then we will be like Cleopas and the other disciple. What do they do after the revelation of Jesus to them? They wasted no time and they got up and they ran to Jerusalem to go tell the others about the good news, to proclaim the good news that Jesus isn't dead. He is alive. We've seen him with our own eyes. We are to be like them. When we see the revelation of who Jesus is, we should go tell people about the good news of Jesus. So the good news of Jesus, what is the good news of Jesus? Why did Jesus have to die and be resurrected? 
Well, the reason why is because God is a holy and perfect, righteous God, and he created you. But you are a sinner, separated from God because of your sin and your rebellion. You have broken fellowship with God through disobedience and sinfulness. And you need to be restored with God. But you can't do it on your own. Like that scripture that Levi read earlier, you cannot make yourself right with God. Why? Because God demands perfection. If you want to have eternal life, God demands perfection and you can never be perfect. To have eternal life, you need perfection. And the good news is that Jesus was perfect in your place. The formula for being restored, if you want to think about it that way, is into a right relationship with God is pretty simple. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame, since there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. But this belief isn't simply intellectual understanding, but a heart change, a change of desires, a desire to follow after him, to let go of your life and to cling to Jesus. This isn't simply walking down an aisle and saying a prayer or being baptized. This is a fundamental change of mind, a U-turn, a change of direction toward Jesus. And it starts with believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. You don't have to believe. You don't have to submit. You don't have to change. But if you don't, then know that you are going to spend all eternity separated from God. You will never know all the fullness of his goodness. You will never know the completeness of his joy. You will forever be separated from the goodness and the grace of God. But if you believe, your life will be saved. You will be changed. Jesus will transform you. He will give your life meaning. It won't be easy, but it's worth it. So why should you believe? Because Jesus made a claim to be God in the flesh. He claimed that he alone could forgive sins. He claimed to be the one that was promised long ago to fix what humanity broken. He, those are some mighty bold claims. And those claims were verified at his resurrection. Those claims were solidified at the empty tomb. So the question is, what are you going to do with the empty tomb? Are you going to believe or are you going to ignore? Now I want you to know it's okay to have questions. It's okay to have a few doubts, but also know that you, like all people everywhere, will have to do something with the empty tomb. You see, Jesus is calling you this morning. You don't have a relationship with him. He wants you to know him. Will you answer that call? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to preach your word. Thank you so much that you revealed your word to us that through the scriptures, we can know your goodness. We can know your love. We can know your grace. Lord, that if we repent of our sins, that means to turn around from our sins and and cling to you, then you will save us. We cry out to you, Lord, forgive me, for I am a sinner. 
who need salvation. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. Lord, if there's anybody in here who hasn't called on your name, Lord, I pray that that would be the cry of their heart this morning. That during this time of singing some songs and responding to the message through reflection, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to those who don't know you. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the reality of the resurrection, to the reality of new life found in you, to the reality of forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, redemption from being under the curse and the wrath of God. Lord, we love you and we're thankful for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com. Thank you.